going to get started. Sin. Really bad. Um, let's pray. Okay. <laughs> uh, does it not feel like sometimes that is uh, how we talk about sin? <laughs> like we really could sum up a sermon about sin in, in uh, two words, three maybe, sin, bad. And the reality is, is that's not really how Scripture talks about it. Yes, sin is bad. Uh, but we tend to get confused about the gospel because we're confused about sin. So the last few weeks, uh, we've been somewhat trying to restructure our understanding of the gospel more towards what Jesus really meant than what we have kind of evolved into over the years. And so this is our ninth week in Rooted. If, you, if, this, if this is your first time here, then you can go back and you can kind of catch up but we've talked about the need to grow deep, to weather the storms of this life. We need to have deep roots. And we've gone through a number of different ways of understanding that. Uh, last week, we talked about bearing fruit. And the reality that when Jesus says you need to abide in Christ in order to bear fruit, he was talking about fruit singular, just like Paul was talking about the fruit of the Spirit. We don't call it the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And he's saying that when we abide in Christ, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control begin to manifest within our lives. And not that we get one and not the rest, but because it's a singular fruit, the more we abide in Christ, the more we manifest those things. Now, today, I want to talk to you a little bit about the poison that poisons us. It poisons our relationships. It poisons the world. As we think about the idea of rootedness, there, there is a, a, an event that happened about 10 years ago that still sticks out in my mind. How, before we do that, how many of you are looking forward to college football season? All right. Oh, there's a bunch. So there's a bunch looking forward to college football season. Tennessee, we're excited. It's a rebuilding year, right? We've been saying that now since 1995, but it's a rebuilding year, <laughs> Are there any Auburn fans in the room? <laughs> it's not good to be an Alabama fan today, I'll tell you, because we're talking about an Alabama fan. However, in 2010, Auburn beat Alabama in the Iron Bowl. You probably already know where this is going, Alabama fans. Yeah. Well, there was one fan in particular. Well, before we do that, let me back up. If you're from Auburn, and I know we do have Auburn fans in the church. They're just not here this morning. If you're from Auburn, there is a tradition, just like it. I went to UT in Knoxville, and so we've got the rock, and we've put all kinds of messages on the rock. It's a big part of kind of game day on Saturdays up at, at for, you know, for volunteer football. Well, in Auburn, they have the oak trees at Tumor's Corner. Now, every time there's a big win, they go to these two magnificent oak trees and they roll them with toilet paper because that's what we do when we're mature adults. We roll these huge, magnificent trees with toilet paper. But this has been a tradition for decades for Auburn fans. Well, in 2010, Auburn pulled up the upset, beat Alabama, and then went on to win the national championship against the Oregon Ducks. Now, there was one fan in particular, his name was Harvey Updike, and he was super ticked off. So this is what the uh, tumor corner oaks, in fact, these trees are so magnificent 
and, and are so important that they've taken seedlings from these trees and literally scattered them around the country so that you can grow other oaks just like this around the country. I don't know if that's a ploy to get people to come to Auburn. I don't know, but they, that, they were really important trees. Now, Harvey Updike decided he was so upset that Auburn had won and that they had gone on to win the national championship that he sprayed pesticide all over these trees. Next picture. And poisoned the oak trees at Tumor's Corner. Now, this is what he said when he was caught because he, he didn't keep a low profile. He called into the Paul Feinbaum show. He called into a professor at, uh, at Auburn to say, I know who did it, and they figured out who it was. This is what he said about why he poisoned these oak trees. He said, I wanted Auburn people to hate me as much as I hate them, Alabama fan. Heath's going to quietly, yeah, <laughs> he's going to represent, proudly represent. He's not, Heath is not Harvey Updike, I'll tell you that. But that, I mean, that's a terrible statement. For one, what, how does college football have that kind of a hold in your life, for one? And for two, this is exactly opposite of what it means to live a good life, right? So the reality is, is that poison, and I know Don and Kim are here today. Don's had some real experience. Don and Kim build ropes courses around the world, and... One ropes course they built, was that in, uh, where was that? St. Augustine, it was poisoned. I think concrete got poured too close to it or something like that. Anyways, poisoned their main starting tree for their ropes course and really affected the whole course. You see, and the, the point is, no matter how healthy you are, when poison is introduced, you become unhealthy. And if enough poison is introduced, even a healthy organism will decay and die. So we're talking about that today. And we're talking about poison in the sense of sin. And as we have been talking through Rooted, and really what our mission, we feel our mission has been at Journey, has been to talk about the gospel in the way God intends and not often the way that it gets talked about. Because sin is often used as a way to beat people over the head and shame people we need to understand how serious sin is, but we need to really understand what it is. And so the first question I want us to deal with in what is sin? And if I were to go around the room, you would probably give some version of, of the response, well, sin is bad, or sin is things God doesn't like, or something like that. But really, when we go back and we understand the context of Scripture through the whole Bible— and when we understand how Jesus talked about it, how the apostles talked about it, not just how they talked about sin, but how we should live in response, oftentimes we end up with a very different understanding that even Jesus himself had about what this is. So we're going to start with the question, what is sin? And we, we are, I'm going to show a short video to you from, from the Bible Project, which I'm a huge fan of. Tim Mackey is a Hebrew scholar, and he's kind of the mastermind behind the content. And they do such a good job of taking complex things and boiling them down into a really short, neat video. I want us to watch this. We're going to talk about it, and we're going to see where this takes us today. So watch this. Most people assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. 
And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate. Because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity describes behavior that's crooked, while transgression refers to breaking trust. And sin? This is actually the most common of these bad words in the Bible. So let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hair and not chata, that is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to chata your way, miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God, a sacred being who represents the creator and is worthy of respect. And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. You can see this idea in the famous code of conduct given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Half of them identify ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half name ways you can fail at loving people. And the fact that both kinds of failure are combined shows that failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. This is why in the Bible, sin against people is sin against God. Like when Joseph refuses to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, he says, how could I sin against God? In Joseph's mind, failing to honor a human made in God's image is a failure to love God. And so, sin is a failure to be truly human. But there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it, or even worse, they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security, in his mind, this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good, and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one. And he says, I have sinned. I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. So why are humans such bad judges between moral failure and success? Well, the first appearance of the word sin in the Bible offers an insight. There are these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their parents had just given in to this beastly temptation to redefine good and evil by their own wisdom, and now Cain is faced with a similar choice. He's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother, and so God warns him, if you don't choose what is good, chata is crouching at the door, it wants you. But you can rule over it. So in these stories, Sin, or moral failure, is depicted as this wild, hungry animal that wants to consume humans. And we know how that story ends. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says sin lives in us so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. 
It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we're succeeding or failing. And it's that deep, selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. This is not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, it's realistic. This is why in the Bible, the story of Jesus is such good news. He's depicted as the creator become a truly human one who did not fail to love God and others. That is, he did not sin. And yet, he took responsibility for humanity's history of failure. He lived for others and he died for their sins. And he was raised from the dead to offer them the gift of his life that covers for their failures. Or in the words of the apostles, he committed no sin, yet he carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to our sins and live to do what is right. And that's the story behind the biblical word for sin. And that's the story behind the biblical word for sin. All right. That was a lot. And if you would like, you can go to the Bible Project's website. All of their videos are free. Uh, they even have some that you can download and you can just go through with study guides on your own. I really love the take that they have on a lot of these issues. So I want to talk about this. Um, a little bit. He talked about three different types of sin. We're not going to go through all of those, but we're going to talk about, well, what is sin or kata or hamartia, which is to miss the mark or to miss the goal. But that leads us to the basic question as Christians. We tend to, this is what we tend to do. We tend to believe that sin are a bunch of actions that you shouldn't do. And if you do those things, God's going to be mad at you, so mad at you, in fact, that if you don't trust Jesus and do better, you're going to hell and you're going to burn forever. However, Jesus never talks about it like that. He never talks about the gospel in those terms. And the problem we have when we define sin like that is there's always like more sins to come up with, aren't there? Who defines what these sins are? Who comes up with all of them? And what we end up doing is we try to navigate this minefield of honoring and loving God and obeying God and not stepping on any of these landmines, not even knowing if maybe there are some we stepped on we didn't even know about. Now, there are a lot of people that what they end up doing is they take that idea and they use it to shame and they use it to hold and lord over people. And they say, you are bad because you did something, you stepped on a landmine you were not supposed to step on. I myself did not step on that landmine, which is why we tend to have kind of our pet sins, the things that we think are the worst of the worst, and mostly we would basically say the worst of the worst are those sins that I myself don't struggle with, but you struggle with. That way I can look back and feel good, and I can judge you, and if we're honest, a lot of the world looks at the church and looks at Christians and unfortunately look at Christ through the lens of those are unloving, mean people. Some of you may be here because you've grown up in a system that you constantly felt like you were an unlovable person and you would never be good enough. Well, is that what Jesus really meant? So if we're going to talk about what sin is, if we're going to talk about, how, <coughs> excuse me, how do we understand that, we have to go back and look at all of scripture. I grew up believing that if you knew the New Testament, you didn't have to worry about the Old Testament. Did anybody else grow up like that? 
Like the good stuff to the New Testament, if you want a little extra reading, you know, you really want extra points with God, go back and read the old stuff. But Jesus came, so the old stuff doesn't matter. The problem is Jesus said himself the old stuff really matters. And he even went so far as to say what I'm telling you and what I'm teaching you is a fulfilling of all the stuff in the Old Testament that they got wrong, which is why Jesus came. In reality, if the way we view sin is a a list of things that we are supposed to do versus not supposed to do, if that was an effective strategy for us to mimic the image of God, then Jesus would never have had to have come. He came because it didn't work. So as we go back and we look and we, we look at kind of what is sin and what is the goal, we are reminded in Genesis 1 that you are created in the image of God. You are. And here's the interesting thing. Even people who are not Christians have been formed in the image of God. That doesn't mean that a person who's not a Christian, and for Christian we're going to say someone who has chosen to follow Jesus, his example, obey his commandments, to do our very best to become more like him. That doesn't mean that every person made in the image of God is going to experience Christ or heaven, but as we talked about a few weeks ago, heaven's not even really the right goal. Yet we have made it the pinnacle of our faith. Like, if you can do everything right, eventually everything's going to work out for you, and you're going to have a mansion and streets of gold, and everything's going to be good. And one of the things we talked about is the reality that for many people, like they could, their idea of heaven, Jesus is optional. Like, it doesn't matter if Jesus is there. As long as I get all I, what I want, I'm not sad about anything. Nothing goes wrong. I don't have to worry about working. I don't have to worry about debt. I don't have to worry about my next meal. Everything's just going to be perfect and great, and I'm going to have a mansion. Everything I hoped in this life, I'll have in that one. So many times our understanding of heaven is not actually even the way the Bible talks about heaven. So what's the goal? If we go back and we look at the law, which gets a really a lot of bad press, and it shouldn't, because it was really a beautiful thing God gave Israel. And you have to remember when he gave it. He gave it at a time that they had just spent generations in slavery to Egypt, never making their own choices, always just doing what their oppressors, Egypt or Pharaoh, told them to do. They had no idea how to manage themselves, no idea how to live lives following God, no idea how to, to actually govern themselves and the law comes to them in a time when they have no clue how to do any of this and so god says i'm going to help you and he does this through only 10 initial commandments now if we go through those 10 they it's going to be longer next slide it's going to be longer but as we look at these i want you to begin to understand and and i think what tim Mackey was saying in that video is so good We were meant to understand that not only do we reflect the image of God, but we love, honor, and respect that in others. So when we understand that that's the goal, then we understand the Ten Commandments a little differently. You shall have no other gods before me means you are going to love, honor, and respect God over anything or anyone else. You shall not make idols. 
you're not going to love a representation or honor or respect a representation of me more than you are me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You cannot love, honor, and respect me if you treat me like I don't matter. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy because I have told you to do this. And in order to love, honor, and respect all people and God, you're going to need a day of rest because it can at times be hard work. Honor your father and your mother. Literally, show honor and respect to your parents because generally that's where you learn to show it to other people and to God. He says, you shall not murder because murder is the absolute opposite of love, honor, and respecting someone because you take their life away from them. And if they're not a follower of Jesus, they have no opportunity there again to become a follower of Jesus. That's the ultimate disrespect, the ultimate dishonor. You shall not commit adultery because then that is a sin for against them and yourself because you fail to love, honor, or respect either of you or your or their potentially spouse. This hurts people. It's not just that God says adultery is bad. People get hurt. Relationships fall apart when this happens. You shall not steal. You cannot love, honor, and respect someone when you want to take their stuff so that you have it and they don't. You see, when we begin to read the law, it begins to, to have a little different understanding when we, when we see what he's really talking about. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In other words, you cannot love, honor, and respect your neighbor if you're constantly trying to get other people to think poorly of them when they didn't even do the thing you're accusing them of. You shall not covet. Like, I want your stuff so that you don't have your stuff, which is almost the same as stealing. You just haven't stolen it yet. Do you see a pattern? Some of the other laws that I, I love in Exodus, and you read a lot of these in Exodus um, 20, 21, 22, and beyond, that you can read them all throughout uh, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Exodus 21, 2, and 3, it talks about literally how do you show love, honor, and respect to your neighbor in, in some very practical ways. Verses 2 and 3 says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, which is not the same as slavery as we understand in our nation, it's kind of indentured servitude. You come and live, I'll take care of you, and just by providing you a, a home and food, a roof over your head, I'm going to take care of you. But a person had to be able to buy themselves back out. He says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. In other words, he doesn't owe you anything. If he comes in single, he'll, he'll go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. In other words, we're going to show love, respect, and honor to people who are unable to make ends meet on their own by giving them a roof and food. But after they've worked so long, you're going to just let them go. And if they're, they came in and they're married to somebody, you don't get to keep their spouse. They get to go with them. How can you love, honor, and respect them if you separate their family? In Exodus 21, verse 28 and 29, talks about an ox. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. So, like your ox goes crazy and hurts somebody, like, get rid of the ox, but the, it's not the owner's fault. However, but if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and the owner also shall be put to death, 
because he knew this could have happened and he didn't care enough about his fellow men and women in his community to actually stop the ox from goring them. So there should be a punishment for that. You, you begin to see how the law is meant to show us how to show love, honor, and respect to God and to others. Here's another one, Exodus 21, 33, similar to what we read about the ox. When a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and doesn't cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his. In other words, you dig a hole and it causes your neighbor's livestock to fall in it and die. So now they've got to go buy new livestock. You're responsible. You should have covered the hole because that's how you show love, honor, and respect to your neighbor. Verse 25 and 27, if you lend money to any of my people with, uh, with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him if Ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, return it to him before the sun goes down. For that's his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. In other words, don't charge interest for somebody who can't even buy food. <laughs> so that you profit on their struggle. And if they give you a cloak to hold the loan, give it back to him because they, don't, they can't go buy another one. And if you don't do these things, they're going to cry out to me, God says, and I'm going to hear them. So for some of you, you may have already tuned me out. <laughs> or your mind might be swimming a little bit because you came up in a system like I did, which was, here's the vast minefield, more vast than you could possibly imagine. You better not step on anyone if you don't want God mad at you. So maybe your mind is swimming a little bit. So let's dive in a little more. What does this mean? In Matthew 22, verse 36, Jesus is asked about this law, and there's a lot more than what I've clearly read. He's asked about it as if, well, now maybe we shouldn't have to follow this anymore, which is also how some of us grew up. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then this is where it ties all this together and kind of reinforces what I'm trying to tell you. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. In other words, every single law in here is about loving God and loving people. We've said that over and over and over again. But do we practically live that out? See, we can disassociate ourselves from people when we make sin about this thing that we're not supposed to do. We can disassociate people from the thing, but God never does that. The thing is always about people, and it's always about God. Sin is always about people. It's always about God. It is not just this thing like God has said, you know what? we should make some behavioral expectations of people that they can't reach. And then let's sit back and watch. That will be so much fun. Well, would we ever worship a God like that? And yet many of us have been worshiping that image of God our entire lives. So what's the difference? How do we, how do we change that? We are meant to spend our lives giving God in each other the love, honor, respect that is due because God is God and everyone else is a bearer of his image. This is why all of this matters. 
This is why community is important. This is why relationships are important. This is why Jesus said, they're going to know that you're my followers by the way you love people. Because this was always the point. The sin, the original sin that, that we talk about in the video of eating of the apple that they weren't supposed to, or whatever fruit it was, was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it wasn't that you all of a sudden had innate knowledge of good and evil. It was the ability to define good and evil for yourself, which is why so many of us think we're doing good, but we're actually doing harm. Because not only do we struggle with knowing the difference, we actually can confuse ourselves. We don't even know ourselves what we're doing is good or evil because our nature has become one in which we define for ourselves, which is why our base sin nature is the desire for me to get mine at the expense of yours. This is what sin is. I want love, honor, and respect, and I will take yours to get it. This is literally what sin is. Go back and look at any sin you can think of, and there is a relational problem there. There is a relational problem. Take, take the pet sins that Christians are concerned with. There is a relational problem in every single one of those. Now, we live here in Chattanooga. We live just a few miles south of one of the most pivotal moments in the development of the American church, which is in Dayton, and it was the Scopes Monkey Trial. Now, up until this time, community, church community, faith community was very much wrapped around together, and the church was at the center of it. We actually have, up until this time, the church is massively growing around the world, and I don't want to put too much weight on this event, but it is an important event. What ends up happening is a schism happens in the community in which faith and science now separate. And faith communities responded with hurt and pain. And if you remember in our emotion series when we talked about anger, what is the anger is a train, right? From my counseling days, anger is a train. What is the engine pulling the train of anger? Does anybody remember? It's hurt. If you will stop and consider enough when you get angry, if you can identify the initial thing that caused the anger, most of the time it will be because you were hurt. Somebody hurt you. They thought something about you. They said something about you. They were supposed to do something for you, and they didn't, and it hurt you. And now you're mad. And the church got mad because they were hurt. Because the community now viewed them as outdated. They weren't smart. They believed in fairy tales. So we began to tell them how bad they were. We were hurt. This is one of the reasons I believe that in the church we tend to bring up sins and we try to keep them on to somebody and tell them, you're going to where? Of course. And you will not find a place in which Jesus' invitation to follow him 
says anything about if you don't, you're going to hell. He never talks about the gospel or faith in that way. But we do. Sometimes in the way we present the gospel, we begin by gaslighting, by saying, if you were to die today and you were to stand before God, would you go into heaven or would you go into hell? I mean, I think I would go into heaven. Wrong! (laughs) Wrong! You don't know it, but you're going to hell. All right, so not everybody does that, but some of us have been in there, right? Am I right? (laughs) You, You weren't prepared for that. Those of you who came in a little tired and didn't get a cup of coffee, you're awake right now. Josh is awake now. Josh is awake. (laughs) He doesn't ever talk about it in those terms. Now, let me be very careful right here. Because there are many who criticize people that say things like what I'm saying and says, well, they're soft on sin. Well, may it never be. We're talking about it today because we cannot be soft on sin but let us understand what we shouldn't be soft on. There's so many times in in the church today that the method that we deliver the gospel is through shame that Jesus never did. And when we introduce somebody into a relationship with Christ at at the end of an arm of shame, then we actually introduce them into something that is not the gospel, and they will spend the rest of their life trying to get outside from out from under that shame by making sure they don't do anything wrong, and they will feel like they are failing regularly when for God it's always been the number one thing is love, honor, and respect me. And the second one is love, honor, and respect everyone around you. And if we all do it right, this is what heaven's going to look like. Would you want to live in a place like that? Would you wait for a place like that? Probably. What is it like to live in a place right now like that? What would it look like if the gospel was alive among us in our community right now that when you walked in the door, you knew they're going to love, honor, and respect me here. And I get to love, honor, and respect them. And I get to love, honor, and respect God with them. So then we begin to look at sin differently. Sin is less about these random things, these random landmines that we have to avoid. And it becomes more about being intentional in our relationships with God and each other, which is how Jesus constantly talked about it. Sin is when we choose not to give the love, honor, and respect that others are due and instead want it all for ourselves. I steal because I want the honor that comes by having that, and I don't want you to have it. I commit adultery because I want that relationship that is not mine to have, but I want it too, and I don't care what it does to my spouse or theirs. I don't care what it does to them. I want that. See, that's very different. It feels subtle. It's not subtle. It's actually massive. Go through any of the pet lists that we have. And you will find that there's a place where our selfish desires are saying, I want it at the expense of others. And God would say, well, that is sin. So how do we love others and God? 
that's sin, then perhaps following Jesus just means that we, when we don't sin, that means we don't seek to get all the love, honor, and respect for ourselves, and instead we give it to others. Doesn't that seem like a lot easier way of following Jesus? Almost like that if you were weary and heavy laden, you could follow him and he would give you rest. Doesn't that sound like something Jesus would I think that sounds like something Jesus would say. He did say that. He did say that. Paul, in Romans 12, his letter to the Romans, he says this. He says, spend your lives trying to outdo one another and showing honor to others. That's what Paul says. Oh, ugh. that sounds eerily familiar to what we've just spent the last 20 minutes talking about, right? What if that is the thing that draws our attention? It draws where we spend our time that we are trying to love, honor, respect others. But there are moral dilemmas. I, I love the ones that he brought up in the video. Pharaoh, I'm helping my people. I'm creating stability. It's national pride it's i'm going to have a, we're going to have a strong defense and we're going to make sure nobody can take anything from us but in order to do that i have to marginalize this group of people i mean i'm glad that doesn't happen today right i'm glad that was just back then this is the problem when we wrap our politics and our faith together and pharaoh thought i'm doing good for my nation and yet here he is enslaving a whole people now i don't think we do that anymore So how do we know which is right? Is the Hebrew slave right in looking up and saying, you're doing us wrong, you're not showing us love, honor, and respect? So a Pharaoh who says, "This is I'm showing my people love, honor, and respect, even if I have to hurt these people to do it. We have moral dilemmas there. What about Jesus? Because we could easily take what I'm saying and say, we should just go around and, have, and hand out flowers to people and just say, I love you. But Jesus didn't do that when he walked into the temple and he started turning over carts and turning over tables. So the idea that we should just go around and smile and blow kisses and hug and we should just ignore what anyone else does and just say, I'm just going to love you. Jesus himself didn't do that. Because he knew the people that were there were hurting everyone who was traveling there to love, honor, and respect God with unfair exchange rates and unfair ways of treating those people. And he came in and he said, how dare you, in the name of God, deny love, honor, and respect to the people who are coming to give love, honor, and respect to God. We never see Jesus come up to an unbeliever and say, I hate you. <laughs> You're going to hell. You deserve to go to hell. He never says that to anybody. The only people he's, he's hard on are the people who say, yeah, I love, honor, and respect God with everything that I do while behind the scenes doing everything they can to hurt those around them. The pharaohs, not the pharaohs, the Pharisees, Sadducees, priests who had made it about their own success rather than about doing the job, which is showing love, honor, and respect to God and helping other people do the same. When you begin to understand and unravel what God really means, so much of the Bible falls into place. And rather than saying, yeah, these things just seem at odds to each other, only because we have not yet seen what it really means. But when we see it, things fall in place. 
There is a mindset in our culture that says to love people is to let them be absolutely free to do whatever they want. But when do you step in? When is love stepping in and saying no? That's not good. That's not healthy. What happens if a friend comes to you and says, I want to end my life? Do you say, well, I'm just going to love you. Do you, want, do you need me to go buy you something so you can do that? Of course not. We would do anything we could to stop them. So the way that we understand love then has to grow. It has to mature. We have to see what it means to actually love people. For Jesus, love was turning over tables and carts sometimes. Sometimes love was walking up and healing somebody even if they didn't follow him. Showing love, honor, and respect to others. There are moral dilemmas. And this is one of the reasons the Holy Spirit is so important for us today to unravel how would he have us to view this and how would he have us to act. What does it look like to show love, honor, and respect in this situation? Because as we've already addressed, when we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we got totally confused on what that's supposed to look like. And the law was not enough. Jesus had to come. And when Jesus came, he said, I'm going to leave and I'm going to give you a helper. He's going to help you with all this so that we can identify and know how to live and how to love. So the answer to all of this is quite simply Jesus. That is the answer. He says, I've come to show you what this looks like. I've come, and I, he says cons- consistently, it, it is not for me to question the will of my Father. It is for me to do the will of my Father. I give him love, honor, and respect. And just as I give him love, honor, and respect, he gives me love, honor, and respect, in which I'm showing you how to give love, honor, and respect to him and to each other. I'm showing you what this looks like. Following Jesus is less about enforcing the rules and it is about showing people you are made in the image of God and you are good, even if our behavior sometimes is not. Our problem is that we tend toward self-benefit at the expense of others. Paul says when we do this, we're actually enslaved to sin, which is the love of ourselves and the desire to have our others. It's a failure to fully love God and to fully love others. It's a a failure with the ability to identify if we're even being successful in any of this. We can't even do that on our own, which is why Paul says no one's good because no one actually can figure this stuff out on their own. You have to have Jesus to figure this out, which is why the Holy Spirit says, listen, I'm here to help you figure this stuff out and I'm going to convict you of the sin in your life so that you can then listen to me on how to not do that anymore, which means how to start loving, honoring, respecting God and others. Jesus loved people without fail, and it was said about him that he didn't sin. Even about anger, when we see his anger as a huge sin because it does so much harm in relationships, it says, be angry, but do not sin. So there is a component of love, honor, and respect that anger can live in that moment too. Jesus showed us what that looked like. means we have to have God's view of what is love. This is why we read the Bible, by the way. It helps us understand how we love, honor, and respect people and God. 
That's why we're supposed to follow the example of Jesus. And this is why I sometimes rant on preachers who talk about you fulfilling your destiny. God wants you to fulfill your destiny, but they never define your destiny. It's always inferred whatever you want it to be is what God is going to cause to happen if you do X, Y, and Z. But Jesus was very clear. There's only one destiny for you. Like you all have the same one too. And that's to look more like Christ. That's it. I always hate when preachers do that. God's going to give you, grant you your destiny. Only if you're talking about becoming like Christ, he doesn't care about any of the rest of it. But whole people devote their lives to him with the expectation he'll give them their selfish desires and needs. And we wrap it in the word destiny. I hate that word. It's everywhere today. I hate it. It shouldn't hate it because our destiny is good. When we begin to look like Christ, that means we begin to love, honor, and respect everyone we come in contact with. That's good. The problem is, is we can't just improve. This is why Jesus gave his life for us on the cross. We actually have to be made new. That's why he calls you a new creation. Like, you can't just do better. That was the Old Testament. That was the law. You can't just do better. You actually have to be made new. You are. You become a new person when you become a follower of Jesus because you it was you and God was over here and then the Holy Spirit came and is now in you. That's something completely different. It's you and the Holy Spirit. You and God. That's different. That's new. David talked about it like this in Psalm 51 after he had done what we would consider were heinous crimes as a king. He said, create in me a clean heart. Create something new in me. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Give me a new heart. The old one can't be improved on. I need a new one. Paul said this in his letter to, to Corinth, second letter to Corinth. He said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Nicodemus, like us, look at a lot of this and go, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it says in John 3, this man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God. No one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, made new, a new creation cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Which is how we usually come to the Bible and come to God with this literal understanding and missing the whole point. This is why we read, we study, we pray, we apply, we talk to others. We say, hey, I don't get this. And then someone who's a little farther down the road says, oh yeah, I didn't get that for a long time either. This is what that means. Oh, now I know what that means. That's what community does. That's what church is about. That's why we do this kind of teaching moment. That's why we do small groups and you talk to each other. That's why sometimes you talk back to me even in here on Sunday mornings because we're figuring this stuff out. We're just like Nicodemus. Like, what do you mean born again? Like, I got to go find my mom and crawl back into her womb and be born again and then I'll be good? And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, I'm born of repentance. I'm turning from my sin, which is focused on myself, not giving God the love, honor, and respect he's due, and not giving my fellow men and women the love, honor, and respect they're due. I turn from that. I repent from that. And 
we, ha- we are cleansed by water. And we are cleansed by the Spirit because the Holy Spirit then comes and makes us new. Makes us new. So what do we do now? What do we do now? If you believe me, <laughs> what I'm saying to be true, and if you don't believe me, and you are stuck in that idea of a minefield of things God has just arbitrarily said, good, not good, good, not good, good, not good. That's a hard life you're choosing. I've tried it. it it'll mess you up. And you'll never feel like you're good enough. And you'll never feel like God loves you. And you'll never feel like you actually have a place in the kingdom of God because you know you've stepped on some landmines. Some of us are stepping on landmines right now. We willingly step on landmines. We understand how this affects other people, how our sin affects other people. We begin to see really the heart of God more. One of the, 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 my hopes is that we need to have some... We need to have some harder conversations, and that's why I'm looking forward to, to our elementary school ministry on Sunday mornings ramping back up so that we can have some conversations I can't really have with you with all those kids anyway. We need to have some harder conversations. But there are all kinds of things we're addicted to willingly, and one of them is on our computers. And constantly what I hear, I've even heard, Scott, Scott and I, we've talked about this before, a friend of his or someone he knows pastor believes that the biggest problem facing adult performers today is they're not giving the love, honor, and respect they're due for their profession. I'll give you, a, I'll tell you 100% that's because he partakes of their product regularly. But usually what people say is this, it's not hurting anyone. It's not hurting anyone. No one knows. It's completely anonymous. Yes, it is hurting someone. It's hurting them because they are deriving their value from what they're putting on your screen. And they were made in the image of God. They are far more valuable than being used as an object. And it's hurting you because you are now associating love, honor, and respect with something that is anything but. See, it changes the way we understand our pet sins. We begin to look at what are the effects of these actions on other people. So what do we do now? This is what Paul, I'm almost done, by the way. What do we do now? Paul says this in Romans 6. What shall we say then? This is another common response. I live under grace. You live under the law. I live under grace. People have been doing that from day one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? Are we to continue in not showing love, honor, respect to God and to people and trying to hoard it all ourselves that grace may abound? Because look, this is God's grace. He's allowing me to be completely 100% focused on me and nobody else. Is that the test? Is that what we put grace through? He says, by no means. How can we who died to trying to get all the love, honor, and respect for ourselves, still live in it if we've died to it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We've died to ourselves. We were buried before with him by baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
May it never be that we claim grace or we say we're all about Jesus when behind the scenes we are hurting people left and right. May it never be. So what do we do now? I encourage you that what we do now is that we begin to look at how do I do this in my life? And not just on Sunday mornings, but I mean like every waking moment of your life. The idea that we only think about this one or two times a week is completely opposite of how God talks about this. In the Old Testament, in the law, the thing that was supposed to teach you how to love, honor, and respect God above all things and then love, honor, and respect the people around you, he, he says, listen, take this law and strap it to your head and write it on the doorposts and put it everywhere you go and teach it to your children and think about it all the time. That's what it looks like to show love, honor, and respect to others. So how can we show this to God and others this week? What do you do with a sermon like this? For some of you, you're going to have to leave and you're going to have to think about this. Even though this is the thrust of where we are going and have gone for years, this feels at times so different than what we've come up in. You're just going to have to Think about this. I don't know I agree with this. I've got my 10 landmines I'm trying to avoid. That's all I can manage right now. I just can't manage anything else. The problem with that thinking is it's all, that thinking is the actual root of sin. I'm actually not concerned with you. I'm just concerned with me not stepping on landmines. It's not the gospel. How can you show love, honor, respect to God and others this week? And I want you to remind you, even people who aren't Christians, how do we show love, honor, and respect to people who aren't Christians? Do we treat them like they're Christians? No. They are also still bearing the image of God and deserve to be treated with respect. Maybe it's You just need to begin seeing others differently and you need to be seeing God differently. You need to take yourself out of the center of the story. Maybe it's about, maybe you're all in. I get it, Mark. I'm all in. Maybe you just need God's perspective to know how to do this more clearly in your daily lives, people you work with. Maybe you need to think about your own actions. Why do I do the things that I do? Am I actually trying to get all the glory myself? But I know that every one of us, we can look for more ways to love, honor, and respect people. And we're standing in line at the store. I saw this yesterday. We're standing in line at the store, and the person working up at the registers is doing their best to help somebody else, and somebody else feels like they're not getting attended to quickly enough. And so they throw their hands up and start yelling throughout the thing that they're going to go to another store and how terrible the service and how terrible the people are. Is that showing love, honor, and respect? No. It's changed. But for a long time, we heard from servers that the worst day to work was on Sundays after church when the Christians got out of church because they wouldn't tip. We love, honor, and respecting when we walk in and we say, Jesus loves you, that's your tip? No. Because they still need to eat. I hear time and time again other servers saying, you know, it's just not, it's not that way. I think 
that message has come across for many of us when we begin to understand other people. What about that person that cuts you off in traffic? You're angry. But you're angry because they're hurt because they didn't respect your space and that you're in a hurry too. And you tell them they're number one. You know what I'm talking about. You're number one. Yeah, we're mad. Yeah, we're mad. But how can we love, honor, and respect? That person is made in the image of God. This is why we work out our salvation. This is why we practice. Because there are plenty of times I'm failing at this. You know what what I want to be a part of? You know what I want this place to be? I want it to be a place that I don't care who you are. I don't care what you do. I don't care what kind of lifestyle you lead. You will be treated with love, honor, and respect when you walk in this door. And my understanding of love does not mean I'm going to say everything you're doing in your life is perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. May we never do that. There's a way to do that by showing love, honor, and respect. It is impossible for us to do without the Holy Spirit within us. Let Him have His way in us. And when a person enters into a faith commitment with Christ, let them enter into the place where they say, this feels right. God is good because He is. I want you to... This, This is the parable of the pearl of great price. This is so good. All the other junk I was trying to make myself the center of is worthless. This one is good. And I'll give everything else to have that. That is the pearl of great price. Treasure that's buried in the field. Let me show that to people. And when they come in, we do not have to agree every decision that they make or that you make or that I make, we can still love, honor, and respect because that is what God has been pushing us toward all along. Let our presentation of the gospel do this. Let the way we live do this. Let the way we talk about, talk to our friends when they're in something that is unhealthy, let us do it in this way. We're not going to have a closing song which is good because I said last week I'd do better on my time management. Clearly that didn't happen. But I do want to have a moment where we pray together. And I don't know where you are in this. Maybe a person that has not been shown love, honor, and respect by Christians before. This feels weird and different. This is what God wants for you. Maybe a person that, I've been too busy about my own junk. I haven't worried about anybody else. You need to reevaluate that and repent from that. We as a church, like, people that show up to help in the kids' areas, like, they're showing love, honor, and respect to to our young families. Your kids matter. I'm showing up. I'm going to show up early, and I'm going to give them my best when I'm here because these kids are made in the image of God, and they deserve to be loved honored, and respected for that reason. I'm going to show up. I'm going to do it. When someone serves, we come up and we say thank you. 
because they're showing us love, honor, and respect. We return to them love, honor, and respect. It is so different when we understand what Jesus is really talking about. One of the reasons that we get together regularly, weekly, and in some cases more than weekly, is because we're not going to figure this out on our own. We need the Holy Spirit within us. And God says, it's not just that. You also need to get y'all together and y'all need to work this out because you're a body and every member of that body is important. It all has a place. Let's figure out how that is. For your response today, I just want to pray. And I know there are lots of different places we are today. Pray that we would leave this place committed. This week, we're going to practice this everywhere we go. Every person we talk to, we're going to struggle. And at times, we're not going to know how I do this. How do I practice this? How do I live this out? We're not going to know. We're going to struggle. We're going to pray. We're going to say, God, show me. I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this situation. And he's going to be like, oh, well done, good servant. This is exactly what this is supposed to all be about. Good job. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to see how deeply you love us. We are honored and esteemed as your sons and your daughters, your very family you call us. You have called us to share that same love, respect, and honor with everyone in this room and everyone in our community, everyone in the world, because every person is also made in your image. Forgive us when we reject your way and instead we make it all about our way. Forgive us Thank you for giving us Christ to die on the cross so that we have a way to return to how you created us, which is that we would live this out every day of our lives with each other. Let our community be so attractive to people who are hurting that they know when they walk in these doors they will be loved, honored, and respected. Father, help us to know the difference in our behavior and in the behavior of others that falls in line with what you say is good and healthy and what you say is poison that will kill someone no matter how healthy they have been in the past. But when we do that, let us do it with grace, just as you talk to us with grace. I pray for those in the room that they came in under a system that said avoid an ever-growing list of minefields, and they have felt like a failure Father, I pray that you would just speak to them through your spirit to show that you love them. The point was never to avoid the landmines. The point was that we move forward in the way of love and the landmines will fall away. I pray for those in this room and they're struggling right now because they have a friend and their friend is struggling and they don't know how to love them. They don't know how to walk with them through this time. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. I pray that you would bring your word alive in them and give them an answer. They would be a positive influence on those around them. I pray that you would remove shame from our toolbox. You would remove condemnation from our toolbox. Father, I pray that you would help us to walk just as Jesus did. Walk up to the woman who is about to be stoned for adultery 
to say, I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Father, help us to follow the path of Jesus. Help us to do that well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Have a great week.